Colossians chapter 3 is the passage I want you to look at this morning. Uh, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Um, read the text, and we'll, I was going to read 1 through 17, but that's kind of a lot, so you can, uh, we're just, we're stay with 1 through 4 and go from there. This is Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Grass withers, flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. We've been working for the past uh, few weeks. It's, I, Jim says some of these songs are new. Technically, every song we sing is new to Missio. So I think you get a free pass. We've been here six times. Like every song we're singing pretty much is new to us as a congregation, so it's okay. But we've been working in these first few weeks together, which is all we've been together, uh, through our vision statement. Then I talked, already spoke on it or brought it up this morning. But this, it, it's an effort in these first few weeks to lay down the foundations of who we're going to be. Um, you know, what, what are we going to be about? What are our core ingredients, if you will? Like, what are the things that are going to be in our, so in, in, in dwelling in our DNA or part of our makeup that no matter what happens in the future, no matter what programming or no matter what buildings we're in or no matter what other activities go on, these are just, these are just principles that are just baked into the cake of who we are. And so we spent the three weeks going through this vision statement, right? That we exist to glorify God by empowering all of Christ's people to worship him with all of their lives and to give every man, woman, and child repeated opportunities to respond to the gospel, and the language of that vision statement's kind of we've been working on and we're, we're, we're still, still tooling with different parts of it. We want it to be able to be a, an easily uh, memorable elevator speech at some level so that when you're out on the street, well, what's, what's your church about? What's Missio about? We all kind of like, oh, this, we exist to glorify God by empowering all of Christ's people to worship with all their lives and to give every man, woman, and child maybe with more definition than that. Repeated opportunities to respond to the gospel. So we're working on that, but at the core, the components of this will not change. We are about God's glory. We want God to be glorified. We want the people of God to be empowered, to be, and to be sanctified, to be drawn near. We want actual Christianity to impact your life. Like We don't want it to just be a service we attend or something we show up to, but that it actually impacts who you are, your daily life, empowering all of Christ's people to worship Him with all of their lives and as part of the Missio Dei, the mission of God, we want to be about the spreading of the gospel, taking responsibility for our geography. Those three ideas, God, his people, his mission, we will not move away from. Those will be the core of deeply embedded realities of who we are as a church. So then for the next four weeks, we're going to look at some of our core values. Now, you don't have to have all this outlined wonderfully in your head. We've got a document that kind of lays it all, that keeps Jim and I uh, in, in, in going in the same direction. But these four core values that we have, God, truth, love, mission, 
our, our values that we want to embody as a, a, a fellowship uh, here in Mount Air. So this morning we're going to tackle the first core value, God. We're going to cover the topic God this morning. How long do you have? Huh? That's right, that's right. We have plenty of time. Plenty of time for the Super Bowl to cover the uh, doctrine of God. No, that's not, what I'm, that's not what we mean when we talk about the, the subject of God. What we, what we mean when we talk about that we hold God as a core value, I mean, it's a little like, I mean, how many churches, how many people, even non-churchgoers, non-Christians would say they hold God as a core value? I mean, what do we mean when we're saying that we hold God as a core value? It is that God holds first place, and there aren't even any runners-up. There, there's no second place. God is the chief uh, priority, the chief focus of our lives. We are about glorifying God. You know, the common phrase that's out there in Facebook land, meme world, family first. You know, and that's sometimes championed as though uh, that's what's first. You know, and, and no, we, we're, we're decidedly not that. Unless by that you mean the family of God. I suppose you could twist it that way if you wanted to. We are God first. We are Jesus first. This is what Paul is communicating in the book of Colossians here. After rejoicing in, in the gospel with them, praying for them, a little theology about the preeminence of Christ. He's before all things, all come things, all things come through him. And, and going on in that line, he, he then ends or gets to chapter 3 with this reality that because of all of this that God has done, if then you've been raised with Christ, what is the believer to do? Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds where? On things that are above and not on the things that are on earth. He's calling them to have a focus, an eyesight, a, a search, a mission after the things of God. So we say God is a core value. We're saying he is a preeminent. He is, he is the first in order of priority in our life. This is what he is communicating to them. They are to have had a priority shift. That when you come to Christ, it creates a priority shift in your life such that you now set your eyes not on your own life and your own benefit and your own furthering, but you set your eyes upon Christ, upon God, upon what he wants to see happen. We are to seek after God who is above not the things of this earth, a priority shift. But, as I already said, we do know every church is going to say they have God as a value at some level. I mean, you could go to, you could go across the board, and they're going to use this generic term, God is a value. And I certainly know that they claim to have God as a value, and even unchristian. So, what does it mean? That God is a core value. Um, back in the 16th, here's, here's what it kind of, here's the way I think of it. Um, I've spoke on this before, but back in the 16th century, we had what we call the Copernican Revolution. Um, and I'm not a history major, so, you know, whatever. You probably can school me on it. But uh, we all, the, the Copernican Revolution, which is that, you know, you can look at old maps. It's fascinating to go back and look at old maps that have Jerusalem as the center of the world. 
Like that was, that everything was Jerusalem and then everything flowed out from the center of civilization there, the, uh, the eastern coast of the Mediterranean. That was, that was where the world existed from. They had a very uh, anthropocentric in, in, of a map of the world. It was the center of everything. At some, some, at some level, we all live and are born living anthropocentric lives. And that's just my try, way to try to impress you, I suppose. <laughs> anthropocentric. It's just the Greek for man. You know, it, it's, it's this I, it, man, human, man, anthropos is the Greek for man. And we all have a very man-centered view of the world. And so for, for millennia, we looked out and we saw that the heavens go around us like this. And I look, and obviously I'm the center of everything, so I draw maps with myself at the center. And we're very much anthropocentric. We have ourselves at the center of everything that is. And then we kind of began to build a, a geocentric model. And so uh, early astronomers would look around, and they, it's fun to watch the way that they would trace the progression of Mars because they put Earth at the center. It was geocentric. G is the Greek for Earth or world or land. So they put geocentric, they have the earth at center, and everything, the sun, obviously, doesn't it? The sun obviously comes up over here and goes down over there, and then it comes back up over here. Obviously, the sun goes around us, right? So they had a geocentric model. And then certain writers, and some before Copernicus, which you don't really care about, but some writers before Copernicus, but he really kind of put it down in a, a more understandable model of drawing the perfect circles, which they aren't perfect circles, they're ellipticals, but very few of you care about that. But anyway, <laughs> he starts drawing this, this reality that was heliocentric, that put helios, sun, that, that put the sun at the center of the solar system. And so they, this, this thing began to happen called the Copernican Revolution, where they took Earth out of the center of our solar system, and they said, no, actually, we go around the sun. And that our, our center of being, our center of existence as a galaxy, as a, as a solar system and these planets, is not me, it's not the Earth, it's not the, not the world, it's the sun, and we're all going around it. And there's this huge... Galileo follows it up, you know, with all this great, uh, you know, measurements of the stars and, all, and proving this theory that we actually are not the center of everything. A Copernican revolution happens. Something besides ourself is the center of our existence. We, the world does not revolve around me. There is something bigger and greater that we all revolve around. And so they had a Copernican revolution. We, when we say God is our value, I'm not trying to uh, advocate for geocentrism or anthropocentrism or heliocentrism. What I'm arguing for is theocentrism. God is the center of everything that is. The world is, does not revolve around us, does not exist around us. God does not exist in a revolution around us. We are theocentric in that the center of our galaxy, the center of our solar system, the center of who we are is God, is Jesus Christ, is his gospel. And everything centers around the gravity of who he is. We are a theocentric congregation. What do we say when we mean, what do we mean when we say that God is our main core value? God is not just one component of our lives. And this is what a lot of Christianity is kind of baked down into and, and probably in our, in our world today. 
is kind of baked down is that God is just this, he's one of the trinkets on our shelves of our big library of what life is about. I've got the God trinket. Yes. Do you believe in Jesus? I've even got the Jesus trinket, right? And I go to my shelf and, and over here on my shelf, I, I love God. I love Jesus. Look, here when I have a need, I go over and I get down the Jesus trinket. I get down the, the God trinket or whatever off the shelf. And he's certainly a part, a, a part of my life. And I give honor to him from time to time. But he is just one of the planets basically orbiting the center of the universe, which is myself. So much of Christianity is, is this idea of I let God orbit me. And sometimes when I need help, I might even let God help me out to accomplish my purposes. Our natural state is one that we are at the center of everything. This is what the fallen condition is. And I, I, to throw out more fancy terms, I love my Latin, incurvatus in se. I think I've actually said that at Missio once already. This is six weeks, and I've already used this Latin phrase twice. Incurvatus in se, which is this, this doctrine of, this, this reality that when we fell, man became bent in upon himself. Incurvatus, curved in upon himself. We are all by nature, nature navel gazers. And that just means we sit and we just stare at our belly buttons all the time. We're just totally, constantly navel-gazing, looking, thinking about ourselves. The world is about ourselves. Everything's going on around us. We're bent in upon ourselves. Sometimes so much conversion is, is communicated as simply a meager ascent or allowance to let God to come orbit around you. Won't you let Jesus come orbit around your life? And conversion is almost peddled softly as though, won't you let God come and orbit your really, really important existence? And when we say God as a core value, we are, oh look, those words are up there. Uh, when, we say, when we say God as a core value, we say conversion, coming to Christ, is not allowing God to just become a part of your life. It is getting a whole new system of how everything works how everything is laid out. We are no longer at the center. Christ is. God is at the center. And our lives orbit around him. Bonhoeffer puts it this way in his book, A Call to Discipleship. He says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. There is a death. There is a worldview shift a changing and thinking that the Spirit brings to the Christian when he brings them to life. If they have died to the old self, they've died then to the old way of thinking, and they have a new center of reality. One writer that was reading this past week said it this way when talking about repentance. Like, what's repentance, right? We, we all use, we use the word repent, and typically what we mean by repent is we have some specific sin we've committed or, you know, we've gossiped or, or, or we got angry or, you know, we've, done, we've committed some wrong. And repentance is, I, I wish I hadn't done that. I'm sorry for it. That's something like that. That's the really just the weak verb. It's just, I'm sorry for it. Uh, a little stronger is, okay, I, 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 I'm sorry for it and I'm turning away from it. But the, the actual term is a, is a huge change in the way that you see everything. Uh, this writer says that metanoia, the Greek for repentance, etymologi etymologically means, it's, just, it, it's what a word means, it, 
is a change of mindset, which includes a change of heart towards God, leading to a change of worldview that gives us a radically new way of seeing everything. That repentance is not just saying, there's a few things in my life that I'm ashamed of and I wish I hadn't done, and so, God, I'm sorry, and I'll turn from those few things and then let you orbit me. Repentance is, oh my gosh, my, I, I, I have seen and I, I still many times cling to this old way of thinking. And repentance is turning from that whole way of what I would argue is, an, is a very me-centric, self-centered way of thinking to, to a whole new way of seeing everything that God is the center of it all. Saying, as Luther does, that the Christian life is one of repentance in his 95 Theses isn't just that we consistently confess individual sins and rebellions, but there's a consistent recalibrating of our orbit. There's a consistent recalibrating of our orbit. What we are centered around, what we are focused on, what we live for is not ourselves, but is God, is Christ, is his gospel. This is what is at the heart of Paul's admonition here in Colossae. If, as a result of believing this gospel, having had, as he says in chapter 2, the record of debt that was against them removed, it's canceled, having been made alive, they are alive unto God, they ought to then live lives devoted to him, thinking thoughts of him, centered on him, concerned with him, consumed with him. Why you're able to say his love is better than life. He is better than life because he's the center of everything. And having you be the center of everything and he circles around and says, I'm better. I'm the best thing. I'm better than life. Not God, but I, I am. Concerned and consumed with him. So what does this look like on the ground? And I, I, I think we get the, the Copernican Revolution, theocentric. It is not about me. It is about him. But how does this actually play out? Turn with me to Psalm 51. And you probably know Psalm 51. You've been in church much. It's a very, very famous uh, psalm of repentance. Um, worth memorizing even to confess at various times. Um, what does this look like on the ground? It's important to see, uh, because I think you'll see a distinction here. Why is sin bad? And we're going to contrast this hopefully a little bit. And why is sin bad in a self-centered or an anthropocentric model? Why is sin bad? And why is sin bad in a theocentric model? If we're saying God is our core value, and is, is we, how we answer that will vastly differ depending on what is the center of who we are. Why is sin bad? How we answer has everything to do with what is at the center of our orbit. Some people say sin is bad because it hurts, hurts others. I agree with that. Sin is bad because it does hurt other people. Sin, oftentimes, if it's, if it's at someone, it will, it will injure other people. Some will say sin is bad because it hurts yourself. When you sin, all you're really doing is hurting yourself. You're, and I suppose even on an eternal sense, that's true. Like if you're sinning and you're unrepentant, you'll, you'll face judgment. You'll face eternity under the judgment of God in hell. So yes, sin is bad for others. Sin is even bad for you in that perspective. Others from a humanistic perspective say that sin, by whatever definition they might use, causes societal harm. 
that we sin is bad because look at what it does to communities. It's bad. And all of those are true insofar as they go. But if you're living in a theocentric world, that is not the biggest issue with sin. That is not the most concerning thing about sin. The most concerning thing about sin, why is sin bad, is chiefly because it is against God. Sin is against God. Your biggest trouble, and that doesn't mean you don't need to make apologies to your spouse or others that you've wronged. This doesn't mean you don't need to try to right, right the wrongs maybe that you've committed. But the first business and most important business you have to take care of is your sin deserves the wrath of God, which is what Paul talks about there in Colossians. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And so just, to me, a clear example, Psalm 51 comes after this sin with Bathsheba. And there's many things David's doing wrong here, right? First and foremost, he's at home relaxing while the war is going on and he's not involved leading his people in the war. He's home relaxing. He uh, voyeuristically views Bathsheba, uh, calls her in, um, commits adultery with her, uh, sins against her by all sorts of measures, fathers a child with her, calls Uriah, her husband, back and then and tries to get him to sleep with her so they can blame the baby on Uriah. doesn't happen. So instead he sends Uriah back out into the battle and has him killed. He actually murders someone. And like list out all the horrible things David's done here. Like our heroes in the Bible, there's one hero of the Bible. His name is Jesus. There's one hero of the Bible. It's Jesus. David, he's great. He's got his problems. So think of all the people he sinned against. Himself, his community. What a sinful king. Bathsheba, Uriah, he had him murdered. Think of all the sin. The children, the the breakup of this marriage. Children now losing their father. All sorts of sin happening. David prays this way in Psalm 51. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, he says, and my sin is ever before me. Verse 4, against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Does David forget everyone else that he's wronged? How in the world is he saying, against you have I sinned? I don't think David, I, I think he's overstating it to make a point in, the, in, in, his, in his prayer to God. That when you live theocentric life, when God is at the center, our main concern is God. Our main concern is a holy and righteous God. What makes sin so serious in a theocentric world worldview is that it is against God. And we have offended his holiness and his righteousness. Therefore, repentance, turning is absolutely urgent, not just for the wrong that it does other, but others, but for the disgrace for the rebellion that it is against this perfect God. To live with any other concern as primary is to be out of the Christian orbit. An issue like forgiveness, that's just one example. An issue like forgiveness, we could go down this road, but you know, who is forgiveness for? And it's popular to say that the only person you hurt when you don't forgive is yourself, right? Because you're holding all of these forgivenesses. I mean, that might be true, I suppose, as far as it goes. Do you know why forgiveness is important? Because God tells you to forgive your enemies. That's why it's important. Because he says, forgive, even as I've forgiven you. And in a theocentric world, yes, you should forgive. Yes, it, it does. If you hold on to bitterness and unforgiveness, it can, 
it can like mess with your mind and your life and bitterness and all sorts of things and hard on other people, sure. But when you're theocentric, you know what your first concern is? God commands us to forgive. God commands us to pray for our enemies. And so his prerogative, his desires, his commands are first and foremost in our mind. Do you feel the different gravity of a God-centered orbit? That's the different gravity of a God-centered orbit. He as our core value. Having God as the core and central value of your life means praying the radical Lord's Prayer. That's a, it's, a, it's a radical prayer to pray through the Lord's Prayer when you say, Thy will, if you're raised Methodist, Thy will be done, in the old King James. But your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That God's desires, God's will, his, what he wants to see work out, his commands, that they be done. You know why that's an important prayer? Every single one of us has a will and a plan, and by nature its primary purpose is to serve ourselves and centered around ourselves and not around God. Positively, it means living with Colossians chapter 3, 17 at your heartbeat. We didn't read all of that because I was afraid... <clears throat> this is what would happen. So, but Colossians 3.17 lists off the things not to do, lifts off the things then to put on and to clothe yourself with. And then verse 17, he says, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What does it look like having this as your heartbeat, when you go to work, you do it for him, praying for an opportunity to make much of him, praying for a heart that treasures him above all else. What does it look like to have God at the center of a universe? That when you go to school, you are praying for the attitudes that glorifies God. You're praying and asking for moments to be able to have connections with friends, to maybe share the gospel or to care for someone who needs care, to be a support to someone. When you're going to the grocery store, praying for providential encounters. When you're going home after work, when you live a theocentric life, you're praying, God, help me to minister to my family, to my spouse, to my children, to not get out of orbit when I get home. Like this is, going home is not the chance to hop out of your orbit that God is the value and I get to go back in my little world, which is all about me. God, help me to keep in my proper orbit. God, lead the conversation. If you're going to a Super Bowl party tonight or somewhere or just watching it at home with family, God, lead me to have conversations that are directed towards you. Give me boldness to be honest. Give me compassion for my neighbors and my friends. God, lead the conversation in a way it should go. Open opportunities to talk of Jesus and give us courage to honestly speak on him. Now for the important part. Okay, you might say, I'm in, Darren. I want my orbit to be changed from a self-centered orbit to a God-centered orbit. What do I need to do? I, that's quite an orbital change. I suppose there's a few steps of going out to the terminal point, coming back and try to get switching all of your orbits. is a lot of science and how all the steps we need to change our orbits. Here's the kicker. You can't change your orbit. The change of orbit is made by an alien power outside of yourself. Don't get me wrong. You can dress yourself up like God is the center of your life, but it by no means guarantees that he is. 
No, something far more significant must happen in you and to you. You must be born again. You must come to the end of yourself. You must see yourself clearly. This reality that I revolve around myself. You must turn from self-effort and look to Christ. It's why Paul starts Colossians the way that he does. He rejoices over them and prays that they may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him and giving thanks to him. Why? Because he's delivered them out of the dominion of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son. Who has done it? God has done it in the hearts of the church at Colossae. He has been the one that has delivered them. If I could say it this way, he delivers them out of the orbit of darkness around themselves and into the orbit around the Son of God, the true center of life. God does that work. When we come to the end of our own self-orbit, repentance, turning from it, that God would, by His Holy Spirit, bring us to life and put us around Him. Being truly God-centered means that we realize, even in our orbit around Him, that it is not the planets that secure themselves around their Son, it is the sun that secures the planets to itself. It is truly all of grace. This morning that we come and we say, Father, deliver me from my natural bent to care for me and serve me and transfer me into the kingdom of the sun of your love. Transfer me out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light. Take my orbit off of myself and around you. This is all bought and paid for. Through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That self-orbit is sin. And it causes wrath and judgment against us. But Christ comes to earth. Lives the righteous life we should have lived. Dies the death that we deserve. So that through repentance, turning from that repentance and faith in him. We be delivered out of that bondage of darkness. And into the kingdom of his light. Let's pray. Father, I, I ask... My prayer, God, oh God, keep, keep me from it, keep us from it. I never want to be a person, a follower. I never want us to be a church that puts on a show of theocentrism, that puts on a show of being centered around you, all the while really just loving self. God, we need delivered. We need eyes open to the futility of our self-love and self-centeredness and to be transferred into the kingdom of Christ. And so, God, I pray. This is something I, my feeble words cannot produce, even in my own heart, <laughs> let alone in the hearts of us who are gathered here this morning. God, I can't produce this even on my own, God. This is not about what's been done by the Spirit. I now somehow muster up the strength to make this happen. God, have mercy. God, have mercy. Deliver us. Deliver us from self-orbit. God, as, even as conversion has happened in so many of our hearts, God, we still feel the pull of the gravity. We still feel the pull back to centering life upon ourselves. God, deliver us. Grant us a spirit of repentance, God, turning from these selfish and fruitless ways that you be honored 
and glorified in our lives. Pray these things in Jesus' name.